Hi everybody. It's a real privilege for me to be able to be with you in this way today. I'm thinking about each of you and missing you and praying for you. And as we come together as a church family to meet around God's word, even though we are separated from each other, I pray that God will unite our hearts and speak deeply and personally to each of us through the power of his Holy Spirit. This morning we're continuing with our sermon series through the book of First Peter, After Suffering Glory. And today we come to First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. I heard about two polar bears who were huddled together in an arctic storm. And the baby polar bear asked her mom, Mom, are you sure we are polar bears? And the mom answered, Yes, dear, I am quite sure we are polar bears. And after a few minutes, the baby polar bear asked again, Mom, are you absolutely sure we are polar bears? And once again, the mom replied, Yes, dear, I am absolutely sure we are polar bears. And after another few minutes of driving wind and snow, the baby polar bear asked again, Mom, are you absolutely, truly, 100% sure that we are polar bears? And the mom replied, I am absolutely, truly, 100% sure that we are polar bears. Why do you ask? And the baby polar bear replied, Because I'm freezing. If you wanted a title for this next section of Peter's letter, it would be this. Be what you are. Peter has already told us that we are God's elect people, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and sprinkled and cleansed through the blood of Jesus. We are those who've been given new birth into a living hope. And now he begins this next section by saying, Therefore, in the light of what I've just said, because of what I've just said, you are to be what God already declares you to be. Let's have a look. First Peter chapter 1 and reading from verse 13 to chapter 2 and verse 3. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. 
for all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. The main theme of this passage is holiness. Verse 16, be holy because I am holy. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the word holy or holiness, but I think it's true to say that those words have fallen on hard times. They don't have a positive connotation in our modern world. You hear people saying things like, she has a holier-than-thou attitude, or he's a holy Joe, or people speak about a holy huddle. Actually, at the moment, I'd appreciate any huddle, holy or not, Maybe I should rephrase that, but you know what I mean. I think that even for Christians, this statement, be holy because I am holy, is a very intimidating one. I think that if we're honest, we read that phrase fairly hurriedly and quickly move on. In the back of our minds, we think that this is perhaps something that is for super-Christians, particularly special Christians, certainly not for the likes of us. The statement possibly even produces a sense of guilt within us. We know that being holy is something that God says we should be, but we feel that we certainly aren't holy, and so we'll read on and look for something a little easier out of First Peter that we feel that we can live up to. Well, if any of that resonates with you this morning, I have good news. Holiness is actually a wonderful thing. In the book Letters to an American Lady, C.S. Lewis wrote this, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. And I'd like us to look at this irresistible holiness under three headings. Number one, what is holiness? Number two, how do we grow in holiness? And number three, Who is it who makes us holy? Firstly then, what is holiness? Peter says in verse 15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Peter is quoting here from the book of Leviticus, chapter 11 and chapter 19. Ah, Leviticus, how many good-intentioned I'll-read-through-the-Bible-in-one-year ships have come to grief on the rock of Leviticus? At the beginning of this year, as a family, we started reading through the Bible a chapter or so an evening, and we've just made it through the book of Leviticus. We barely made it through the book of Leviticus. Uh, To be fair, we summarized parts of Leviticus, and now we're summarizing parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the book of Leviticus is all about holiness. And when you read through the book, you suddenly realize that holiness is not what you thought it was. It's not morality, being good, 
certainly it includes being good, not killing or committing adultery or stealing. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. Because as you read through the book, you discover that tables can be holy and shovels can be holy and oil and incense can be holy. In chapter 8 of Leviticus, we read how Moses takes some special oil, which itself is holy, and he anoints the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and everything in it to consecrate it, to make it holy. Holiness can't be morality then. How could a shovel be moral? How could a shovel be immoral? The word holy comes from a Hebrew root word meaning to cut, and the idea is to make that object separate. When I was a kid, newspapers and magazines often included coupons which you could hand in at the shops for a discount. So, for example, on one of the pages of the Reader's Digest magazine, in the middle of the text of the magazine, there would be a coupon for Nescafe coffee, 50 cents off Nescafe coffee, which was a lot of money in those days. And I remember how my mom would take a pair of scissors and carefully cut around the dotted lines of the coupon. She'd carefully cut out the coupon and then she'd put it in a special place to be kept until she next went to the shops. To be holy means to be set apart. A shovel in the Old Testament was holy because it belonged to God. It was used only for him at the tabernacle or temple and for no other purpose. You and I are holy because we belong to God and we are to be used only for him. And that has two important implications. Firstly, holiness is personal and relational. In Leviticus chapter 20, God says this to his people, You are to be holy to me, because I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Holiness is about relationship. A good example of this concept is marriage. Well, let's take a couple of steps back and think in terms of dating. When a young man starts going out with a young woman, he does everything he can to please her. He finds out what she likes and what she doesn't like, and he tries to meet her needs and desires, and he tries to impress her with his love and care. As that young couple grow in love, they may announce to their friendship group that they are now going out, which means that they go out with one another, and neither of them go out with anyone else. You see this idea of exclusivity, of being separate to one another, of holiness. Eventually, they get engaged, and the young man buys an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a small band of gold that stops circulation. The young woman is now exclusively his. He is exclusively hers. To him, she is separate from all other young women. To her, he is separate from all other young men. They are, in a sense, holy to one another. And then a few months later, they stand in front of their friends and family, and the minister asks, John, do you take Mary to be your lawful wedded wife, to live together according to God's holy ordinance in the holy estate of marriage? By the grace of God, will you love her, care for her, protect, honor, and support her in sickness and in health, prosperity and adversity, and forsaking all other, 
keep only unto her until death do you part. Again, separation, exclusivity, holiness. Now take all of that and apply it to a relationship with God. I'm very rarely asked for dating advice, but no one has ever come to me and asked, Andrew, what is the minimum number of flowers that I can give to my girlfriend and still have her love me? Nobody asks me that. But when it comes to tithing, do you know what the number one question ministers are asked on the subject of tithing? Must I tithe on my gross salary or on my net salary? Do you see why that is the wrong question? That's thinking about God in terms of rules and not loving relationship. The Bible itself uses this picture of a romantic relationship ending in marriage to illustrate our relationship with God. The Old Testament uses it in a number of places. And in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Holiness is deeply relational and personal. Secondly, holiness is all-encompassing and not specific. Look again at verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. There are many groups who try to give themselves a sense of cohesion and identity and exclusivity based on an agreed list of do's and don'ts. I remember Pastor Tony Campolo saying that as a teenager, his church had a little rhyme that governed their ethical behavior as teenage boys. They used to say, we don't smoke or drink or chew and we don't date the girls who do. They were trying to form an identity through things that they did and didn't do. But when you understand that holiness is personal, you suddenly realize that holiness can't be reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, there isn't a single area of your life that isn't affected by that relationship. In my own life, there are three relationships that fundamentally affect every area of my life. My time, my money, my hobbies, my likes and dislikes, they're all affected and sometimes disrupted by the needs and desires of Michelle, Karen and Sarah. And as we read on in the book of First Peter, we'll see how my relationship with Jesus affects my work, my civic responsibilities, my marriage, how I deal with adversity. Holiness, belonging to God, affects all of life. Secondly, let's ask the question, how do I grow in holiness? Holiness isn't something that we get zapped with so that we are automatically holy. We have to grow in holiness. When we become Christians, we become righteous, right with God. God takes our sin and he places it on Jesus and then he takes Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life, and he credits that to us. And that's why holiness can never be equated with mere morality. Because if doing good things made us right with God, 
then Jesus died for nothing. No, Jesus' death gives us righteousness, and now holiness means that he becomes ever increasing me my most important relationship. And in these verses, Peter shows us four ways in which we grow in holiness. Firstly, we grow in holiness by engaging our minds. In verse 13, Peter says, Therefore prepare your minds for action. The Greek expression here is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. In those days, both the men and women wore long flowing robes with a belt around their waist. And if as a man you needed to do something quickly, uh, this was only for the men, women wouldn't do this, but you would tuck the bottom part of your robe up under your belt. Now you know why the ladies didn't do this. You'd tuck your robe in, you'd gird up your loins so that you could run. That's why the English Bibles translate this as prepare your minds for action. As Christians, we are to be thinking people. I love what one pastor had to say in this regard. Okay, it was Pastor Tim Keller, but I say one pastor because you might be tired of hearing his name. But he says that many people accuse Christians of not being thinking people. We're not rational or scientific or intellectual enough. How can thinking people believe in things like heaven and hell and the resurrection of Jesus? But actually, it's the secular, agnostic world that aren't thinking. People in our secular society believe that everything came from the Big Bang. We are not here because of any plan or purpose. We're the result of random forces. Not only that, but at present, as the biologist Francis Crick puts it, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Not only that, but in the end, it makes no difference at all if I've lived a good life or an evil life, because eventually the earth will fall into the explosion caused by our dying sun, everything will be destroyed, and there will be nobody left to know that I ever existed. That's what modern people, by and large, believe. But if you say to them, what do you think about all of this? Their answer is likely to be, well, I try not to think about that too much. I just tried to live one day at a time. Of course you can't think about it too much. If you thought about it and really believed it, you would either commit suicide in despair or you would live the most raucous, pleasure-seeking, who-cares life that would either get you killed or sent directly to jail. By contrast, Christians are thinking people and what we think about affects our lives here and now. And Peter tells us two things that we are to think about. Firstly, hope. Verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Many people in our world right now are talking about hope. But I think that often their hope is simply in hope. I'll be listening to this sermon myself with my family this morning, and at this point my daughter Sarah is going to strangle me. Sarah is a Star Wars fan. Actually, Sarah is a Star Wars fanatic. She can tell you everything there is to know about Star Wars and quote long sections of the movies off by heart. 
recently she shared a quotation from the movie Rogue One with me, where Princess Leia says this, Hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it, you'll never make it through the night. Now, with apologies to Sarah and all other Star Wars fanatics, that quote sounds very encouraging and hopeful. But what is its hope? It's hope in hope. You need to believe in hope. If Princess Leia had said, the rebel fleet is like the sun, or the force is like the sun, if you only believe in it when you can see it, you'll never make it through the night, that would make sense. But to say, if you only believe in hope when you can see it, you'll never make it through the night, it's very beautiful and poetic, but it's not very practical. Remember a couple of weeks ago we saw how the French atheist Jean-Paul Sartre said on his deathbed, Hope needs a foundation. Hope needs an object. Peter isn't telling us to improve our ability to hope so that we say to ourselves, I will hope harder, I will hope harder. We don't become more hopeful people and then turn to God. Christian hope is strengthened by focusing on the object of our hope. Peter has told us that in his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. And now Peter calls us to set our hope fully on that. Think of a little boy who has a birthday party coming up. He doesn't say to himself, I will hope for my party. I will resolve to anticipate my party. He just thinks about the birthday party. And by thinking about it, he has strengthened his eager anticipation, his hope for the party. In a similar way, we as Christians think about Christ's return, which automatically stirs our hope. We anticipate him, verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. God is the object of our hope. When I think about Jesus and the fact that one day I will see him face to face and spend eternity with him, then that develops holiness within me. I separate myself from earthly things, from temporary things. Uh, some of those things are bad and wicked and evil. And some of those things may be quite good in and of themselves, but they're just lesser things. And I put those things aside in making myself exclusively God's. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in them purify themselves, just as he is pure. Secondly, I prepare my mind for action by meditating on Scripture. Verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And then moving on into chapter 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. How do I grow in holiness, in becoming exclusively God's? It's through reading and thinking about and meditating on Scripture. At the moment, I have times where I find myself feeling fearful. I imagine possible scenarios. What will happen if one of my daughters gets COVID-19? What will I do if they can't breathe in the night? What will happen if one of my family members dies from this disease? What will happen if I get sick and need to go to hospital? What will happen if I need a ventilator? What will happen if there isn't a ventilator for me? What's the antidote to those kind of worries? The antidote is thinking. I am God's child. He has made me and formed me. Not only that, but he has sent his son Jesus to die for my sins and bring me to himself. I've been made righteous through Jesus' blood. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give me all things? One day when I die, which might be in three weeks' time from the coronavirus or might be tomorrow morning from a heart attack, I will immediately be in the presence of Jesus and I will live with him and all those who know and love him for all eternity. I repeat these things to myself. I read recently about a lady who'd suffered a significant trauma in her life and at one point her pastor said to her, you need to force-feed scripture to yourself. And I just love that image because it's sometimes where I find myself at present. I don't always want to read the Bible, mainly because I'm in the book of Deuteronomy at the moment. But I need to force feed myself. And every time I do that, I find comfort and encouragement through God's word. The only way that we're going to get through this crisis at the moment is by thinking deeply about our faith. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and he says, Sanctify them, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. I grow in holiness through reading and meditating on scripture. So I grow in holiness by using my mind, by thinking deeply. Notice also that it is possible not to think to not use our minds. And Peter warns us against that in verse 13. He says, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. The word is literally, be sober. Peter is not asking that we go around never smiling or laughing, always serious, looking as if we've been baptized in lemon juice. He is suggesting that we think seriously that we don't just drift into frivolity. I think it would be very easy under lockdown to give up hope and to give in to things that we wouldn't normally give in to. And Peter then urges us to be self-controlled. So we grow in holiness by using our mind. Secondly, we grow in holiness by engaging our will. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And if you look down a bit further in verse 22, Peter says, 
now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. There are times when our marriage relationship doesn't involve an act of the heart or even an act of the mind, but rather an act of the will. That's why, incidentally, the traditional marriage vows don't ask the question, John, do you love Mary? Anyone at the wedding can see that John loves Mary. He stood there with dreamy eyes, not listening to a word the minister is saying, with a silly grin on his face. The question is not whether John loves Mary now, but whether he will love her in the future. By the grace of God, will you love her, care for her, protect, honor, and support her in sickness and in health, prosperity and adversity, and forsaking all other, keep only unto her until death do you part? Sometimes love is an act of the will where I remember the commitment that I made to this person before God. And holiness, too, is an act of the will I choose to obey out of love. We are now God's children who've been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us from our ancestors, and we've been brought into a new family. As God's children, we now obey the rules of this new family. Thirdly, we grow in holiness by engaging our hearts. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. I heard about a seminary professor who one day asked his older teenage daughter, Tracy, is there any way in which you are afraid of me? And she immediately said, oh, dad, of course not. And he said, no, think about it seriously. Is there any way in which you're afraid of me? And she said, well, I suppose, yes, in some ways. And then he asked, all right, and is that a good thing? And again, she thought for a while before answering, yes, I suppose that is a good thing. And perhaps it might be good to think about what Peter says in this verse with that kind of conversation in mind. The psalmist writes in Psalm 86 in the older versions, Unite my heart to fear your name. We recognize, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We live our lives in reverent fear then, knowing that our lives are going to be judged, but it's not a soul-destroying terror, because the judge is our Father, and our fear of him then draws us towards him. Fourthly, we grow in holiness through our love for others. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters, Love one another deeply from the heart. And verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Peter speaks about our love for others in a couple of places in his letter, and so we'll come back to these verses again in a later sermon. But just to say that Christians cannot be holy before God without loving others. You cannot pursue holiness without loving your brothers and sisters. So we grow in holiness through engaging our minds, our wills, our hearts, and through loving others. I wonder if that rings any bells. Do you remember Jesus saying to us, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbour as yourself. We've looked at what holiness is and how we grow in holiness. But finally, let's look at who it is that makes us holy. Verses 18 to 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Understanding this can radically change our lives and help us separate ourselves to God. Notice again, it's not about rules. It's about relationship. It's about understanding what Jesus has done for us. Stephen Charnock was a British pastor who lived in London in the 1600s, and he spoke about the difference between taking your sin to Mount Sinai where you see sin as a broken law and you feel upset about the consequences, and taking your sin to the cross, where you see what effect it had on God. Let me read to you what he said. A legally convinced person, someone who thinks of sin as just breaking a rule, cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as the roaring of a lion. I have provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, whose words can tear up the foundation of the world. But an evangelically convinced person cries, I have incensed the goodness that is like the dropping of a dew. I have offended a God that had his hands stretched out to me as a friend. My heart must be made of marble. My heart must be made of iron to throw his blood in his face. In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, just before his death, Jesus prays for his disciples and he says this, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. That's an amazing statement. Jesus isn't saying that he will become moral so that his disciples will become moral. He's saying, I set myself apart. I make myself holy. I give myself away. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for them. I'm going to die for them. And we in turn look at that and say, in the light of what Jesus has done for me, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. I'm not going to live for myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I'm sure that some of you will have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, the movie tells the story of Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, and his men who undertake a mission to find one soldier Private Ryan, in the middle of the battlefield of Europe during World War II. It's a strange mission, but the men have been asked to find Private Ryan because three of his brothers have already been killed in the war, and their poor mother will receive all three death notices on the same day. 
And so the decision is made to get Private Ryan out of the war and bring him back home. And so off this group go to find Private Ryan. And by the time this group of men have managed to locate Private Ryan, many of them have been injured and killed. They've saved him at a great cost. And near the end of the movie, as Private Ryan is about to be evacuated, Tom Hanks, Captain Miller, who is dying himself, grabs hold of Ryan and he says to him, Earn this. Earn it. Now, as Christians, the words earn it don't apply to us. Jesus' final words on the cross were not earn it, but rather it is finished. We can't do anything to deserve God's grace in our lives, but we can live up to it. We can become what God has called us to be. As Peter puts it later in chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now be what you are. Amen.